Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. We've had a few interviews in a row, and now we're going to get back into the meat of our story. We pick up with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. We're going to discuss the implications of the treaty and what it meant for California's history. After that, we're going to get into the military government before getting into a large topic in California history that everyone knows about, the gold rush. We'll spend a lot of time in the gold rush and meet some amazing and fascinating scholars along the way that will help us understand what exactly the gold rush was. All right, let's get to today's episode. Today we're going to talk about peace treaties. I think we take for granted what a treaty is exactly. Getting specific, a treaty is a legally ratified document between two or more sovereign parties. It's as simple as that. Some treaties are between peaceful governments, think NAFTA, and other treaties are between warring countries or parties. Peace treaties have a long history. In fact, they go back thousands of years. There was a peace treaty that was signed in 1350 BCE between the Hittites and a confederation of governments that fought with them. While on the surface, treaties exist between two parties, the victors in the conflict typically have more sway over the direction of the treaty. When one thinks of a particularly one-sided treaty, the first that comes to mind is the Treaty of Versailles at the end of World War I. This punitive treaty, which was incredibly one-sided, had considerable consequences and led to a second conflict. Sometimes treaties can be innocuous or mundane, or they can be ignored, and they can even be used to justify even more forms of violence. Because, after all, treaties exist within a political environment that gives them power and context. And each party that is involved in the treaty at the end of the day, has to enforce that treaty. We begin with this preface today before getting into the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo because while the treaty set out some principal terms and expectations, how it was carry out, carried out in the United States did not live up to the high-minded language that was written on that document. Now, before we go any further in discussing this treaty and its implications, let's get some of the basics of the treaty squared away. First, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was signed on February 2nd, 1848. The conflict between the United States and Mexico had been over for five months by that time. The last hostilities between the two countries took place in September 1847. When the treaty was signed, the United States gained somewhere between 525,000 and 600,000 acres of land. The land included territories which would become present-day Arizona, California, Colorado, Nevada, New Mexico, 
Utah, and Wyoming. In addition, Mexico let go of all claims to Texas. In return, the U.S. paid about $15 million, which is roughly equivalent to $500 million in today's dollars, but of course, equivalencies uh, between money now and then is hardly accurate. But, to put it in simplest terms, the United States got a deal. Now, a few interesting details about the treaty. The president at the time, James K. Polk, wanted the treaty negotiations to take place in Washington. The representative that he had dispatched to Mexico City, Nicholas Trist, believed that he actually needed to negotiate the treaty as quickly as possible, because he believed that the government that was uh, in charge was unstable. Even though Polk had ordered him recalled, the order didn't reach Trist in time until he'd fin finished negotiations. Polk was not satisfied with 55% of Mexico's land. He also wanted Baja California and some land east of it. He lobbied for this additional land as the Senate attempted to ratify the treaty. Now, in getting into the nitty-gritty, I do think everyone should read the treaty in its entirety. You can just Google Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo and you'll find a PDF of the treaty online that you can read for yourself. But today we're going to focus on two key articles uh, which pertain to land rights. Um, the first one I'll excerpt, and the second one I'll read in its entirety. The first article to look at is Article 8, the key part of which is, quote, Mexicans now established in territories previously belonging to Mexico, and which remain for the future within the limits of the United States, shall be free to continue where they now reside, or to remove at any time to the Mexican Republic retaining the property which they possess in said territories or disposing thereof and removing proceeds where they please. End quote. The second article is Article 9, which reads, quote, The Mexicans who in the territories aforesaid shall not preserve the character of citizens of the Mexican Republic, comfortably with what is stipulated in the preceding article, shall be incorporated into the Union of the United States and be admitted at the proper time to be judged by the Congress of the United States to the enjoyment of all the rights of citizens of the United States, according to the principles of the Constitution. And in the meantime, shall be maintained and protected in the free enjoyment of their liberty and, uh, my own emphasis, property, and secured in the free exercise of their religion without restriction. End quote. The other article I wish to read was Article 10. However, during the Senate proceedings, Article 10 was deleted. Article 10, the deleted article, had many details regarding land rights. Nonetheless, even without Article 10, the above Articles 8 and 9 clearly specify that land rights purchased under Spanish or Mexican periods of government should be considered legitimate. There was a common understanding that people living in the new, new, newly annexed territories had the expectation to retain property as well as retain many of the rights that they had under the Mexican government. Of course, how things played out is always different than what the principle of the treaty seems to be. 
Of course, what makes the whole situation with people who would stay in the United States, newly claimed territory, and only about 3,000 would actually leave to go back to the Republic of Mexico, is that they are both, in their identity, conqueror and conquered. They both are a conquered people, most recently, by the United States, but then they also took land from native people when they arrived. So they have this dual identity that makes them a unique case in respecting their historical or ancestral land rights. No matter how sophisticated a court is, this one is obviously a head-scratcher. In California specifically, there would be a vacuum of authority on the matter of whether land rights that existed under the Mexican government would be upheld. And in different parts of the newly annexed territory, differing levels of stringency were applied to land claims. For example, in New Mexico, 76% of land claims to retain control and ownership of the land would be rejected. That's three quarters of all land claims in the territory of New Mexico would be rejected. In California, only 27% would be rejected, so substantially less. And that was likely in large part to the differences in the types of residents that existed in these different regions, as well as perhaps uh, the size of the land plots in these different regions. California would make strides to solve this vacuum by creating in 1851 a land commission to deal with issues of land ownership. The commission, which was a three-person body, basically gave people in California two years to make property claims or that land would be absorbed into the body of the United States public land. Years after the treaty, the California Supreme Court and the United States Supreme Court would jostle over how to look at these previous land grants under the Mexican government. The California court initially distinguished between two kinds of land grants, perfect and imperfect land grants. Now, perfect appears to mean, and grant me some mercy here, as I've sifted through a number of documents and legal journals to try and understand this concept, perfect appears to mean something along the lines of having a clear title of the land as opposed to having a vague title or the land being shared in common. For example, in New Mexico, a stricter eye was taken toward community land grants, a grant of ownership to a group of people that held land in common and worked it together. Unlike California, where there was presence of gold and international interest propelling quick adjudication of issues in New Mexico, the apparent barren desert caused the land-granting process to creep to an almost crawl. When things were finally addressed later on down the line in the 19th century, many of the land grants did not strictly follow the laws as the U.S. courts understood. Many of these people lost their lands because the U.S., in the end, decided not to respect customary or non-specifically legally certified documents that purported to show ownership. This was not considered uh, of the same legal standing as documents that had been processed in a typical or normal way. So going back to the difference in the 76% of land claims in New Mexico being rejected, it's likely that the U California, in processing its land claims early, more people were able to retain their land until the U.S. government decided 
it would be easier uh, to find ways to strip the land through different legal means. Even still, uh, these, quote, perfect land grants were not completely safe. In 1891, the U.S. established a court of private land claims and kept upping the temperature and making the eye of the needle smaller and smaller for people without clear claims to retain property that they had before they became U.S. citizens. And we haven't even got to the issues of the Native Americans here either, which in and of itself is extremely complicated, and we won't get into it here, because ultimately uh, the the history of land claims with Native Americans is complicated and related to a broader history of the United States. Um, and we'll come to that later as we talk about Native Americans um, in California. Uh, but today we're focused on uh, Mexican citizens in California or Californios um, and their experience of claiming lands that uh, they believed them that they believed to be owners of. So ultimately, what is the legacy of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo? Many people say the treaty still governs the way the United States and Mexico relate to each other. While the treaty did guarantee political and civil rights in theory uh, to the people that became U.S. citizens, in practice, many of those rights were not respected by the U.S. government in ways similar to Native Americans. Over the course of the history of negotiating with Native Americans, U.S. courts created a precedent for negotiating with Native Americans, which essentially stated that rights not granted away, which is a funny phrase, but it's the phrase used, granted away, meaning rights that are not taken legally by the treaty, are retained with that people group. In other words, at the end of the conflict, people's rights are not done away with unless specifically spelled out in the treaty. In fact, our founding documents attest to the fact that many of the rights that people have exist outside and beyond governments, and the fact that governments are only instituted in order to protect those rights. This obviously is opposed to the alternative view that undergirds many decisions that are taken by governments, not just the United States, which is that might is right, or, to put it more simply, the right of a more powerful country to plunder weaker or vulnerable countries. The finders, keepers rule. Now, there have been some extra legal resistance to the changing hands of land in the United States by different groups. In Las Vegas, New Mexico, not Sin City, but uh, a city named the same in the state of New Mexico, a group of night riders called Las Goras Blancas, the White Hoods, uh, worked to undermine the changing tide of land and even helped to create a political party, El Partido de Pue del Pueblo Unido, a united people's party to protect land rights. Nonetheless, sadly, as this story typically ends, the gears of money and political power slowly ground away most of the movements uh, to protect this common land. This episode, where we discuss the ramifications of this treaty, is important in large part because the land of California will, in the end, become some of the most valuable real estate in the world. The implications of stolen land, either through violence, through war, or obtuse political machinations, 
should be on our mind as we begin the United States history of California, as California becomes a state, as people start to arrive from around the world. Now, on another front, there is an interesting movement by a senior leader on the left um, who was a legislator named Cardenas, uh, who is convinced that the Mexican government has the legal standing to nullify the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo uh, because it breaks many of the norms of international law. Now, just to be realistic, while the legal action has little chance of success in courtrooms, these are at least very important media moments to reflect on the history between the two countries and think about ways to not fix, which would be impossible at this point, but at least perhaps gesture toward an understanding of what happened. Now, when it comes to land rights in California, that's a complicated issue because there are so many parties involved and issues and matters about control and power and ownership are complicated. One small step that we could do as a gesture in California, and this is not the first time that I've talked about this, is that we need to change our state flag. I tried to avoid taking political stands on topics here because this is meant to be simply a narrative of the history of the state. But at this point, celebrating the Bear Flag Revolt as some important moment in our state's history as opposed to what it is, an insurrection in Mexico, is simply not a good look. And I do believe symbolism matters. Therefore, it is time to change it. Our next episode, we're going to talk about the military government of California and how it was administered, which will lead us into a big topic where we will spend a lot of time, the gold rush. See you next time.